Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, and today I'm honored to welcome Dr. Uday Devkin, a renowned figure in the realm of ophthalmology and in cataract surgery in particular. His career in ocular surgery is distinguished by his dual roles as both a skilled surgeon and a very innovative educator. Through his cataractcoach.com platform, he has been instrumental in educating and training the next generation of ophthalmologists. His contributions to the field extend beyond his surgical skills as a mentor, thought leader, and researcher. His influence on the evolution of eye care and his vision for the future have helped shape the practice of eye surgeons across the globe. He's a friend and mentor of mine, and I'm thrilled to welcome to the show. All right, Uday, thank you so much for being with us today. It's it's such a pleasure to have you. I mean, you have been so integral to my career and the career of so many surgeons in terms of teaching and learning from your website, cataractcoach.com, of course. Tell us about your story. I mean, how did you get started in ophthalmology? Well, I went to med school because I didn't know what else to do. My parents were just said, if you go to med school, pay for it. I was like, okay, I'll go. And while I wasn't super gung-ho, aggressive uh, of a student in college, I took the MCAT, nailed it, got into a great med school, and I just, uh, I loved med school. I thought med school was amazing. They're teaching you the secrets of the whole body. And especially at the time, I was very much into like weightlifting and working out. And when I realized like what the anatomy of the rotator cuff was, I was like, oh, that's why the supraspinatus is kind of prone to injury. And the, I just was blown away with med school. I really loved med school so much that I, I actually gave away my television. And I did nothing but focus on med school. I was just so singularly focused on med school. And then I loved the hands-on. Med school was amazing. I went to med school at USC, University of Southern California, an amazing medical school. Because it was a, it's a humongous county hospital. At the time, I was there was the older county hospital, 1,200-bed hospitals. Like any of these big cities with these big charity hospitals. You learn by doing. They had a laceration room. And I went that last rage room and I practiced suturing in during my free time on weekends. I'd go there with my headphones and a thing called a, a Walkman. You probably know what that is. <laughs> a little music player. And I'd just sit there and there were an endless supply of patients who needed a laceration sound. And there was some a supervising physician. He'd say, okay, good, but try it this way instead. I just got better and better. And I loved, I loved the hands-on. So I had to do something surgical. And then I liked a lot of surgical specialties. Neurosurgery was amazing. ENT was amazing. But ophthalmology, I saw something that, to me, just blew my mind as an absolute miracle, which is a patient with a white cataract having a brief surgery and achieving normal vision. And I was just like, this is just beyond amazing. And the county hospital, they did white cataracts every day. So like, I have to do this. So I actually, at the last minute, decided I'm going to do ophthalmology, switch gears to ophthalmology. USD at the time had some unbelievable ophthalmology mentors. The chairman of the time was Stephen Ryan. I mean, Stephen Ryan was, you know, Phil Wilmer came down to start USC at the time was the Doheny Eye Institute when he started. Then uh, he became dean, and then the new chairman was Ron Smith, and another amazing guy who, who carved time out of his schedule to talk to me, some random third-year med student. He carved an hour out of his schedule to come just hang out with me, talk to me. And so I was like, well, I just got to do ophthalmology. So I switched to the last minute. I'm, I'm applying for ophthalmology. 
And then at the time, there, I wanted to stay in LA, and there were two great programs, UCLA and USC. And so at the time, I wanted to be UCLA. It was across town. It was a part of town I grew up with. UCLA is like six miles from my high school. And also, it was a bigger program at the time, and still is. And so I, I went across town to train it for a residency at UCLA and just loved it. And there are some famous things that obviously happened from UCLA. I think CMV retinitis was first described there. Yeah, Gary Holland, he definitely interacted with me when I was a resident there. He's a very interesting guy, obviously a very brilliant man. But uh, yeah, UCLA is a very new place. I'm thankful that I had great mentors who gave me so many opportunities. I was talking about this yesterday with someone that, you know, when I was a resident at UCLA in the late 1990s, I wanted to do LASIK and it was just not hitting the scene. And UCLA had one of the early lasers, you know, antiquated lasers when you look at it now. And they didn't allow residents to do LASIK. So I went to a glaucoma attending who's my advisor. And I asked her, would you please help me go to bat for this? And she went to bat and made sure that all residents could do LASIK at UCLA. So I was the first resident to do LASIK at UCLA. Four eyes total. The patient, they wouldn't let them drive the day of surgery. So I actually picked them up in my 18-year-old Volkswagen Jetta and drove both patients to the surgery and drove them home. And I had to do it twice because you, could only do, you, don't get, you couldn't do bilateral surgery back then. And so that person was Ann Coleman, who's now the new chair of UCLA. So bless her. What an incredible person. I have a glaucoma tendon. Go to bat so you can do LASIK. You obviously had some interest in LASIK there. But what drove you into cataract and refractive versus retina or you know, glaucoma? Well, initially I thought I would do retina. And that's kind of what I was going in there with that mindset. But, you know, at the time, there was no OCT machine. There's no anti-VEGF treatment. In fact, what was the treatment for ARMD? It was either using an argon laser to ablate part of your phobia, or it was doing macular translocation surgery, which eh, didn't really work out. So, but cataract surgery was just still amazing. And at the time, it, took, it didn't take long before I realized, like, with LASIK, you have such a narrow band you could do of refractive errors. At the time, only myopic patients, and even then, very limited astigmatic treatments. But cataracts are you could treat a minus 30 or a plus 30 refractive errors. Amazing. And I, just found, I found the surgery to be really a ton of fun. I just loved the surgery at the time. And so I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And I had a mentor when I was a resident, a senior resident, I was going to apply for fellowships. And he said, well, ask yourself carefully, what exactly will you get out of that? And at the time, UCLA's Coney Fellowship was two years. There were some great fellowships that I liked, Doug Coke and Baylor, Dick Lindstrom's fellowship. There were a couple others too. Peter McDonald at the time, before he went to Wilmer, was actually at UC Irvine. So I liked those were all amazing. But I didn't think I'd get anything special out of it. And I mean, truth be told, if I did, let's say, a one or two-year Cornea fellowship back in the year 2000, well, there was no femtosecond laser. We didn't do, use dual shine flu tomography. We didn't have lamellar chronotransplantation. We didn't have all these IOLs we have. I taught myself this. I taught myself DMEC by watching videos online. So it's like, you know, no, I don't need to do a fellowship. It's not going to get me what I need. Now, it may be different now. Now you actually are now seeing the, the emergence of these specially refractive surgery fellowships. And most are not at academic centers. And those may be a different animal. Maybe that's a different breed. But at the time, 20 years ago, no, it's not heard of. So after you decided, okay, I'm not going to do a fellowship. I'm going to go into private practice. Kind of walk me through what was next for you. It's tough. Super tough. Um, I set up part-time my own private practice. Part-time the university at one of the county hospitals wanted me to still spend time as a newly minted attending. So I did both. So in parallel, I developed my work with the residents as in academia 
in parallel, I did my own private practice. And I started off from scratch doing nothing initially. You know, the first month in my initial practice, I did one cataract. Six years later, I was doing 150 a month. And so it, was like, it grew very rapidly. I had a couple locations. One in a, a neighbor in L.A. was predominantly Spanish-speaking. I speak great Spanish. And then another one on the west side, kind of where I grew up. But the, the key there, though, is the practice just evolved. And then similarly, my involvement with the residents kept getting more and more and more. And I thought I just really loved spending time with residents. And I found that as I climbed the academic ladder, I was pretty aggressive, assistant professor of 30 or 31, associate of 37, full professor of 44, and the chief of the, the big county house were probably since like mid to late 30s. And I just decided that like, I don't want to run this place. Like I want to run my private study center. So we just bumped the volume of everything. So from doing three or four categories for a full day, no, nah, we're doing 10. That's the minimum that's what we're going to do here. And kept like crazy metrics, tracked everything, all the times, all the people, tracked everything, you know, the work. And really took pride in what I did there. And, and again, it pays off. At UCLA with 100 faculty members, there's one teaching award a year, faculty teaching award. And no one's ever won it twice, but they're behind me on that shelf or one, two, three, four, five of them. And that's no surprise, obviously. You have a very impressive history in terms of all the teaching you've done. When you think about teaching in ophthalmology, who is your biggest teacher? Number one with a bullet. It's Bobby Osher. I, at the time, would hunt down videotape. The video journal of cataract surgery. Then it became the video journal of catacrofractive surgery. Now the video journal of catacrofractive glaucoma surgery. He's the pioneer. He's brilliant. And I love learning from him. So when I first started doing the traveling the world gig, maybe in my mid to early third, early to mid 30s, at any meeting he would speak at internationally, I'd always go sit in the front row. I just loved learning from him. But that's the origin of learning from surgical video. It's Bobby Osha, 100%. He is Il Padrino, the godfather. And that's why on my podcast, he was guest number one. I said, Bobby, I owe it to you. You have to be guest one. He's an amazing guy. And I, and I still learn from him. He set the precedent for how this is done. So we had Video Journal. Now, when did Cataract Coach start? Well, I've been making videos for a long, long time. If you go back and look on, the, on YouTube, I made it under different email accounts that I can no longer access now, like university accounts, et cetera. But I have videos that are 20 years old on YouTube. You could tell by the low definition, right? They're all standard up, 640 by 480 pixels. And so, but I had videos from way back then. The craziest part is I got started recording videos by dumb luck. And here's what I mean. I finished my training in the year 2000. I set up a clinic and also my own surgery center in one part of town. And then another part of town here where I am on the west side of LA, I started sharing space with someone else operating in like a hospital. I was pretty good at surgery. And I was able to do surgery very efficiently. I, I was really concerned with getting better every case, not just kind of going through the motions. And I spent a ton of time in the wet lab. I could do what I call, even now for my residents, the 10, 10, 10, 10 sutures of 10 on nylon, in 10 minutes on a tomato or whatever. So I really, and I also grew up left-handed. My parents made me switch so I could do both hands very well. And so even when I attend a resident, sit at the head of the table, if it's your left, left eye operating on this template, I'll just help you with my left. I'll never switch tape sides. I'll just use the assistant scope full time, and I'll just, I can use both hands. But anyway, in this hospital, one of the older ophthalmologists that complained that I could not possibly be doing a sub-10-minute cataract surgery, that it must be a sham surgery. And I was like, seriously? And this is the same hospital that 30 years prior, like, wouldn't give my dad privileges because he was too brown and had an accent. and had a funny name. And it's one of the reasons my dad's like, you have to get privileged at that hospital first because they could never get, they'd never get to me, but you're American. You trained here. They can't say no to you. So I operate there. And then that next thing you know, they have a complaint. 
So I rigged up a system with a handheld DV camcorder with DV tape to the assistant scope, and I recorded every case I did. And then I sent it over to my, it was a standard desk, and I sent it over with a cable called a FireWire cable, that's all this is, to my desktop, and it would render the video one frame per second. So it would have to render, the 10-minute video would take the entire night to render. But I also, I used those videos in my presentations. And at the time, no one had presentations with videos in them. But I had built-in MPEG-1 files in my PowerPoints in the year 2001, 2000, 2002. No one had this. And so that was like initially how I got started making videos. Because some of the kids did something so stupid. Obviously, it wasn't the case. And so I, there, there were beautiful surgeries. There were real surgeries. I complained that no attending cataract surgeon with uh, that many years of experience should take 45 minutes to do a FACO, but they didn't listen to me. So there's a lot of stuff that happened already online about with surgical videos, very, very old. And then one time in 2018, a resident of mine who's now a retina faculty at, at Wills, he says to me, he says, it's so much great stuff online. I wish it was all in one place. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. Like, That's a great idea. So I was like, okay, I want to be like your coach. Like even the best tennis players have a coach. A coach they could probably beat, but you still need the coach. So there's a benefit to having coaches. So let me just do cataract coach. I registered the URL sometime in 2018. I just I started setting it up, and I started making a video. I said, you know what? I bet I could do a video every day. And so I started every day, and I think it was May or so, April, May of 2018. And next week is video number 2000. I mean, that's as someone who makes some videos myself, you know, doing a video a day, I uh, it's really impressive. It is a ton of work for sure. But I mean, part of the other reason is it's just, I do, it's not just the videos though. I even have now a full 25 part curriculum series to learn surgery, going from like patient selection and draping and anesthesia to ergonomics to like complicated cases. And those are like 30 to 45 minute lessons. You do one a week, that's six months or one every other week is a year for residents. I have a free cataract coach PDF book, about 70, 80 pages. It's free. It's on cataractcoach.com. You click on it, download it, you put it on your phone, your laptop, send it to your friends. I don't care. There's no restrictions. It's free. And so I, and I, do, my, I do my podcast too. So I, I keep having more and more ideas of things that I want to do. And I just kind of go with them. Do you know how many times your videos have been watched if you were to add them all up? Yeah. So just like the YouTube ones alone is 20 million views and 57,000 subscribers. But I have other people. You can also watch my videos on other sources, whether it's Instagram, like I saw one of yours this morning, which I, we can talk about. I loved your video this morning on Instagram or on Facebook. or on, It's also on um, cataractcoach.com, on LinkedIn. They're all over the place. I'd say at a minimum 20 million. And you were so smart to get ahead of that and just come up with your own website and do it because it's cool to post things on social media, but it's really not a good medium for videos because they're not searchable. You can't go through and be like, oh, I saw that video that so-and-so posted like two months ago. Let me go try to find it. And then they can't find it. On cataractcoach.com, I know most people watch it just on YouTube or on the YouTube app on their phones or their tablets. But if you actually go to the Cataract Coach website, the search engine there is fantastic and it's predictive. So if you want to say, well, what does that mean about the ACIOL? Just type in ACIOL, boom, they all come up. And I've also categorized every video. So there'll be a case where, let's say, you want to say, I have an RK patient coming up, radial keratotomy. Well, just click on my RK categories, boom, they all come up. Or post your poll, they all come up. And then I've also tried to have a complete library. So like coming up, I think later this week or next week is, a video about using an, a YAG laser in the clinic before surgery to YAG the anterior lens capsule for an intubescent white cataract. Don't they call it circumpunction or something like that? Or YAG circumpunction, right? right? So 
not a technique that I do, but I want to have the full library. So I'm putting that video up there too. I think that's so cool is you're not judging the videos. You're just saying, hey, this is what's out there. This is, if you want to learn it and you want to try it and you want to do it, here you go. I think that's awesome. And I have to imagine this has made a huge impact, not just here. I have to imagine that there's a huge international following. Tremendous. I just came back from two international trips in October. I have two more in November. I'll have 10 international trips this year. So I travel a tremendous amount. And yeah, I just, the, the, the part that shocks my, uh, my family is like, why are those people asking you to take selfies? And I'm like, well, I know you think I'm just a big dork, but I'm a big dork who like helps a lot of people learn surgery. So as I mentioned with, with some other guests, it's one thing to do thousands of surgeries. It's another thing to have taught, impacted so many surgeons who then go on to impact thousands of patients themselves, right? You've amplified. I can't imagine that there's another surgeon that has impacted more ophthalmologists than you through cataractcoach.com. There's probably some close seconds. You're too kind, but I mean, the theory behind it was if I could teach a thousand surgeons something that'll benefit a thousand of their surgeries, that's a million patients' health. And I think we've easily surpassed that. Is cataractcoach.com continuing for forever? Yeah, why not? So much fun. I'm having a great time doing it. I learned so much by doing it. I'm not some big, high and mighty professor. I'm just a coach, but you can teach me stuff too. Like I, I can talk about your video this morning, something very interesting. You know, you had a patient with a displaced a single piece of acrylic lens and you used the femtosecond laser to make a new combined anterior posterior capsule fused together rexus or a capsulotomy, then a little pars plane anterior vitrectomy, and then put a three piece lens in, captured behind that. Beautiful. Like, I've never done that case before. Do you want to talk about the evolution of nuclear disassembly? Because all we've really talked about on the show is kind of some divide and conquer for the most part, or intercap. So in the, obviously it, it progressed throughout the years. I mean, if you go way, way back when, it was, they were doing FACO in the bag, but then too many bags were breaking. Then they would flip the whole nucleus up completely in the AC. And this is before great viscoelastics. This is before FACO power modulation. So just continuous FACO energy. And they just munch down this nucleus on the AC, and patients would end up with pseudo-faking bullets keratopsis. Then they went back in the bag and then went to divide and conquer. Slowly, someone moved to stop and chop. I think Paul Koch is credited with that. And then Nagahara comes up with the fake chop technique in, believe it or not, almost 30 years ago, 1995. And I think that's just amazing. Now, there's some certain sub-variations of that. But I think if you're a surgeon, do what makes you happy. I'd rather you do a beautiful stop and chop or beautiful divide and conquer then uh, uncomfortable, not so smooth, fake chop. But ultimately, if you can learn fake chop, I promise you'll never go back to the other techniques. It just doesn't make any sense. So to me, that's important. The other thing is, on the other side, forget fake forget even dis disassembling the nucleus. You have to learn MSICS. Now, they say MSICS is manual small incision cataract surgery. I just changed it to manual shelved incision cataract surgery because it's not a small incision. It's very large. But to make it shelved is really the key to the whole surgery. And I even have videos on cataract coach to teach you a very basic, here are the simple steps, how to do MSICS. And I think it's an important technique. I use it in Beverly Hills a couple times a year, but in, in, certainly in this population. But, but it is, on a charity surgery mission trip, you can use it all the time. And I think that's the important thing. Having that breadth of knowledge, having all of these different techniques, these tools in your toolkit, I feel like that's one of the, the themes of cataract coach. You just want to learn as much as you can. I want to learn all these things, even if I don't do them on a routine basis. You've been involved with training residents for a long time. And how has that evolved over your career? 
it's changed in a lot of ways. Some good, some a little bit more challenging. So I actually just decided to retire from teaching residents last year at the age of 52. So I did it for 22 years, age of 30 to the 52, and that was enough for me. I love the residents, love teaching them, love the nurses, and most of all, love those sweet county hospital patients the best. But it was enough. It's time for me to pass the baton to someone else, and I could use less administrative grief and bureaucracy and that kind of stuff. I'm old-fashioned. I'm more about the patient care and the actual resident teaching. But I think the good things that have happened in resident training is the residents obviously learn a lot more. I mean, think of what I learned in residency, plus all the things they were developed in the last 20-something years. They have to learn all these things. They have to. They do work very hard, but I think they have a much better work-life balance than we did. And I think that's really important. And I didn't understand that, you know, 20 years ago when I was a resident more. But I think residents are a lot smarter about that now. That makes for a better residency. And it's nice. We also have some better tools nowadays that can sometimes make the exams faster, easier, you know, with the, whether it's an OCT or Fundus Photo or whatever it may be. I mean, I guess the exam still takes probably the same amount of time in terms of learning how to, to use a slot lamp. There's nothing more, <laughs> nothing more exciting than teaching med students how to use a slot lamp, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's all fun. I mean, the excitement is the enthusiasm in, you know, about the learning. And I think that's the most important. And, you know, residents, now you have an incredible opportunity to learn things before they happen to you, the beauty of surgical video is it shortens or compresses your learning curve. You don't need to experience yourself that smoke sign on the fake to know it's blocked and you're going to get a fake wound burn because you've already seen the video. So when you see that happen to your case, you can come off the fake come off the energy, get out of the eye and save your patient a lot of grief. So you can learn to manage these complications before you ever encounter them. And that's magical. Are there any historical figures in ophthalmology other than Bobby Osher that, that you've met or, or you know, perhaps have influenced your career either directly or indirectly? Oh, my gosh. Scores and scores of them. Every one of them. We always stand on the shoulders of the giants. I didn't develop into this in a vacuum. It's through the help of so, so, so many people. In fact, there's one thing that I, I, have, a, I have a video of 2000 coming out next week, Thursday. It's not a surgical video. It's more about kind of life lessons and what I've learned in making the last 2,000 videos. And one of those lessons is I show pictures of like the last 20 of my podcasts, of the face shots of the people I interviewed. It's like never compare yourself to others because comparison is the thief of joy. There are so many unbelievably amazing ophthalmologists in our field. I can't hold a candle to any of them. The good part is I don't need to. I only have to keep it with myself. And so, you know, I, I can't. There's so, so many influential people. I can't even begin to start. I mean, it's literally, I, dozens forget dozens. It's hundreds. And I can learn from almost anyone. I was talking to a medical student last night who was applying for residency, and he's asking about, like, he's going to interview at a, a, a program. Where I, I was like, well, oh, there's a corny person in that program who taught me DMEC. I'm like, oh, but he's way younger than you. I'm like, no, no, no. I watched his videos. That's how he taught me. He probably, I don't think he's ever met me in his life. But I watched his videos. He taught me DMEC. Even someone I haven't met has been influential in my learning. What about the evolution of some of the IOLs? We're really lucky. We've had such an evolution in IOL designs. On the multifocal side, from refractive to diffractive, from bifocal now to trifocal, EDUF styles of various varieties. And we're only going to get more and more evolution of IOL designs. And I think the important one that's coming, and it's definitely coming, is a truly accommodating eye well. Now, I was lucky to be the first surgeon ever to do the Juvene 
from LensGen in Panama 2015 already, and with that lens is now in FDA trials. But I think there are going to be a lot of good horses in this race, and it'd be great if many of these horses kind of make it to that finish line. So if we have multiple great accommodating Iowa designs to choose from, that would be fantastic. That's what we're going to, we're going to have. Plus, we're going to have the ability to do refractive index shaping, be able to change the Iowa power of any IOL, even though certainly it was done years ago. It's already in your eye multiple times over the course of the rest of your life. So to, to maintain great vision for you in perpetuity, even when you hit 90 years old and develop all that against the rules. Though. I hope that happens. I remember seeing that at ASCRS in 2018, there was a big talk about refractive indexing and then it kind of fizzled for a little bit, but I really, that's one of the more promising technologies. I mean, to be able to take a monofocal to some sort of diffractive design or to change the power, induce astigmatism or cancel out, you know, a multifocal design if for a patient who's having glare halos. One of the key people who's developing that is Randy Olson, the chairman of University of Utah. And I had him on my podcast, and he explains all this. It's coming for sure. They're already doing it now. They're just working on getting it a little bit, you know, more streamlined, a little bit faster treatment, et cetera. But they're already doing it. So I think a lot of these things take time to bring to market. And obviously, I've been involved with many of these companies. It takes a tremendous amount of money. But it's going to come for sure. You're going to get this for sure. And you're getting one more neat thing coming. You're going to get fully automated robotic cataract surgery. I'm involved with a company now called Horizon Surgical. Wow. Wow. Amazing. I think it's definitely coming. And I think that's what's so, I think it's an enabling thing. I think a lot of surgeons are kind of concerned or scared about that. But if we've learned anything, or if we should have learned anything, anyone who's been listening to this podcast, it's that we are a very innovative field. And for the most part, all of our innovations have only helped to improve our goal of helping patients. And I don't think that's going to change even with robotic surgery. I think it's just going to allow us to help more patients and, and do things more efficiently and, and effectively. Are there any perhaps lesser known ophthalmologists that you think should be more, you know, should have more recognition? They can be historical. You know, they don't have to be someone who's out there today. There are certain political parts of our field, unfortunately. And there are things that just kind of won't happen. There's like, you see it now. There's the insiders club with this organization or the other one. And no, you can't invite him. You can't invite her. But it, it, that stuff is so crazy. Because listen, we're all ophthalmologists. Show me an ophthalmologist who's not a geek, a dork, or a nerd. Because I'm all three of them. I mean, that's just right. It's kind of who we are. So none of us were the cool kids. So what? Now we're supposed to be cool kids and exclude others. It's so crazy. But the nice part in ophthalmology, especially what we're doing here, which is kind of a more public key opinion leader, out, an outward-facing ophthalmologist, there's so many different roles. The same way that Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Jim Carrey, they're not going out for the same roles. They have, they're all major movie stars, but they have their own kind of flavor, what they do. I'm not trying to be you. You're not trying to be me. Other people want to do more of the social media stuff, more of the fun stuff. I'm a dork. I can't figure out what cool music to put in my Instagram, so I just have, like, my voice. So you can be yourself, and there's so many different flavors. There are surgeons that are under – I met a surgeon. This last summer when I was traveling overseas, no joke, personally with his hands, 10,000 cataracts a year. Has done more than a quarter million cataract surgeries. You know, one of the cool things that, that you've done is to travel internationally to be involved in early, early clinical trials and first in human use. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of your trips? I know, you know, what you're allowed to talk about, of course. Yeah, the nice part is ophthalmology. We work so well with industry because we're both on the same page of helping patients see better. And I've really been I'm very impressed with the ophthalmology industry because 
everyone I meet there is just really patient-centric. And I think that's what it all boils down to. And so, yeah, there are opportunities to go to other countries to be involved in very early outside U.S. Uh, clinical trials. And I've done a number of them, and they've always been fun to do. Now, the tough part is, obviously, you've got to travel there. And tra- sometimes you want to travel with your own surgical instruments, which I don't want to check in. So sometimes you go through the metal tech and I'm like, what is this? No, but it's a neat opportunity for sure. Totally. Honestly, some of the coolest experiences I've had have, have been in those sorts of situations where, especially if it's an instrument or like a device that actually does something, not just like an IOL that you're putting in. When you're having to troubleshoot, it's like being in mission control, like what I would imagine, maybe not Apollo 13, because that's life or death for certain people. But you know, you're right there like with the engineers and you're like, what if we try this? No, we gotta try this. And then you're 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 trying it out and it does work or it doesn't work. And it's just such a cool experience. It's such a for those of us that are nerds and geeks about this stuff and also like helping patients, it's such a cool experience to get to do. And so I think you're absolutely right. One of the things I do want to talk about is you're very patient-centric. And, and one of the reasons you decided to step away from teaching is you wanted to spend more time with your patients. Sure. I always love the patients. But one more thing about the international trips. If you're a young ophthalmologist, if you're an ophthalmologist in your 30s or 40s, the one thing you can do to make your heart glow with warmth but also improve your surgical skills is a charity surgery mission trip somewhere to a random spot on the globe. But I used to do one a year. And the amazing part is you have the most difficult cases with the most rudimentary equipment. That gives you skills. Any advice for someone if if someone's looking to do that? Yeah, there are many organizations that do this. And you can Google them. I don't even have to mention them. But you can be involved with any of them. They all are always looking to have surgeons come volunteer their time to help out. And you'll be impressed. You can you'll say, oh, I can do you'll do 50 cataracts in a day, but wow, those were not easy. And that's also another reason you need to learn MSICS, because a lot of these countries, an absolute rock of a cataract, I promise, and they've been in light perception vision for 10 years. They don't mind if they have a diopter to residual astigmatism. Just fix the cataract. You don't even have to hit Plano. They'll still love you. Totally agree. Yeah. And there are lots of opportunities, I think, even locally. That's the other thing is being able to offer surgery locally. We have a lot of patients who unfortunately cannot afford care. So whether it's at the county hospital or there's organizations locally, you can always kind of reach out to them. How do you feel like the patient conversation has evolved over your career? It's a lot more complicated, obviously. And so the patients now have a lot more options. And part of our challenge is explaining to them what's going to be best for them and what are the options. That's the big challenge. When you first started, what was the patient conversation like? It was, uh, you're only putting in monofocal lenses. So you have a cataract. You need to take out the cataract, which is the lens of your allergies cloud. We'll put a new lens in. We'll make you see better. And then afterwards, we'll get you some new glasses. You weren't concerned so much with refractive outcome. With that said, we've been doing refractive cataract surgery forever. I mean, one of the pioneers we talked about earlier, Osher, was the one who pioneered corneal arcuate incisions for astigmatism. He's the one who pioneered refractive lens exchange for high hyperopes, and he was crucified for it. He was, if you listen to the podcast he did with me, he was something you would do every day now. A 60-year-old who's a plus four with a shallow two-millimeter AC depth and a narrow angle. Yeah, and they want to get rid of glasses, make them pseudo fake, best thing ever, and fix their anatomic issues. No, he was crucified for it. That's the challenge you have here. I did another podcast where you'll be surprised to hear there was something that people used to call it's a ticking time bomb in the eye. The IOL. The IOL. And that's just how, when LASIK was being done initially, you're filleting open the cornea. It's sometimes we oftentimes don't help each other enough. You know, it's interesting. That's, that's been a theme on, on this show is, you know, 
for every innovation, there is an equal and sometimes even stronger opposing force ready to swat down. And I think it's it's a testament to a lot of the surgeons who say, no, this actually is better. I mean, we're very lucky that the surgeons who have pushed techniques that are actually superior to what we previously did were strong people. Even then they had battles to fight. So that's one of the things you'll hear in my, my video 2000. That video, I talk about some important lessons, which is like, can we stop being such haters? You know, I spend minutes every day deleting hateful comments on YouTube every day. It's like, seriously? Like, and sometimes they don't even hide their name. And they're like, and I'll probably, hey, I remember having dinner with you once in your hometown. And the, and the guy like will sheepishly go back and delete his comment. I mean, it's like, are you, kid- are you kidding me? And I try so not, so try so hard not to ever. Any video I have, even the anonymous ones that are sent in with a complication that's bad and a fake wound burn, I'm not criticizing the surgeon. I'm thankful to the surgeon for sending the video in. So anonymously, we can all learn together. So I'm not there to, to dissect anyone and to, no, we're all here to learn together. And I also give away every possible secret I know. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it was very uncommon to give away the secrets that you learned over the time. Like, what do you do for this tough patient? Yeah, let me show you a trick. Now I give away everything. So we have to, like, push ahead and do that and... You can't let the haters win. I totally agree. And with that, I mean, for those who are listening who maybe want to get into posting videos, because obviously you post a lot of videos, I post videos, totally do it. But you have to steal yourself because you're going to get comments. And I can only imagine with the with just the sheer number of videos you have. I'm sure you've had a few with that. But Coming on 2,000 videos, you can imagine the number of comments I get on a daily basis. So it's like that itself is a ton of work. If you have a desire to do something off the wall, please just do it. Do it and reach out to other people. I promise they will help you. 100% of ophthalmologists will reach out to me. At a minimum, I'll reply to your email. I'll try to give you some help if I can. I'll try to give you some bandwidth of my time. 100%. When you think about cataractcoach.com, 2,000 videos, do you have a top three? That's tough. I don't really have off the top of my head like a top three. But I mean, there's so many that I learn from. I show my mistakes. If you look carefully on Canada Coach, you'll see a case of me doing a hydro dissection on someone who had 20 intravitreal injections. I guess half of them went in the in the bag. And so, boom, nucleus on the macula right away. It's like me, it's a, and I have my name on it. It happens. So I, I show my own complications. I show here's what I could have done better. If, you, if you've been to my ASCRS course, which is now, I mean, they have to give me a bigger room. It's just like literally people are out the hall, and down, down the hallway, even on the floor everywhere. All 10 cases that I showed are things that I could have done better. And I had a, a panel of experts there to intentionally, I know these, these are strong doctors, kick my butt. Let's have some fun here. And so a little bit of self-deprecating humor. Yeah, and you do that not only at, at ASCRS, but you've done that at other meetings too. It's so cool. It's such a great, humble way to give back. Right. Well, I got to thank the, the organizers for ACOS, Bill Trattler and the crew there and and Stephen Dell got me on my cataract coach session for OSHA's coming up, telling it like it is meeting in Tampa in February. I have a whole hour of the best of cataract coach. I haven't even put it together yet, so I got to get a hunt for some good cases. But I got to thank the meeting organizers and, and the, the people who designed the panels for giving me the time to, to be able to do that. And I've been fortunate enough to be on two of those panels at, at ACOS and, and, uh, and Millennial Eye. They're always great sessions and so well-received. And you have such a repertoire of incredible videos that you can pull from, too. All right, so if you're listening and you haven't figured it out, go to cataractcoach.com, 
you know, check it out. I know you've seen it before. I mean, no, no one's listening to this podcast that hasn't actually been to the website. Actually, send me a message. If someone's listening to this that hasn't actually seen, I don't think I'm going to get a message, though. I, I'm just curious. Who is that? <laughs> is there anyone out there and in the field that hasn't seen your website? So thinking about that, what do you think? And I've asked every guest this. When you think back over the, the entire history of ophthalmology, what do you think is the most influential impactful or important innovation to date? For me, it's the ability to learn from each other, which we've really increased dramatically in the past, since the past. If you go back way, way before, how do we learn? We write these, you know, book chapters that came out once a year and you'd study these books, right? All the books that are behind you and behind me that don't really, don't really open that often. And then how it evolved over time and how you got better training programs, teaching programs. But they can't teach you everything. Like I said, if, if I relied on only my residency or even fellowship training, but everything I do today is different. I don't do today what I learned 20 years ago. Very different. So it's the ability to continually learn and to share the knowledge. And that's why we've had such an amazing ramp up in our ability to teach each other. Because everyone in your pocket, you got a high-definition phone. Anywhere on the planet, you can watch a video like I watched your case this morning of that femtosecond laser really for an eye well exchange. I never even thought of doing that. And then I was just like, wow, that's really brilliant. I mean, so now when I have that case in the future, I'm going to have to find that video on Instagram somewhere again. And I'm going to do the same. But so you were able to you relay that message. And I didn't have to learn from one professor or one mentor in training. I could learn from everyone. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it. And so what we've done... Sharing information is the key, and that's what we've done better than anyone else, any previous generation of ophthalmology, for sure. But again, we stand on the shoulder of the giants. I'm making videos only because of Osher. It's a cool evolution to think about, you know, you had a video journal, and kind of at the same time, you started posting videos, and you had, you know, Tom Odin starting to do eye rounds, and, and really, you guys kind of led the charge with digital. One was more case-based, unique cases. The other was surgical, you know, in particular, cataract videos, but now you have Pretty much everything, right? I don't have much poster segment, but I have glaucoma and cornea and everything else. But you know, Tom Oding, big shout out to Tom. We used his cataract surgery for greenhorns reference that is like a basic online book. We used it for 20 years with our residents. It was amazing. And then his surgical video repertoire also amazing. So it's like we all we learned from each other. We really do. So looking forward. If you, you know, you, you've mentored a ton of people over the years, looking forward two questions, and we kind of talked a little bit about one of them, but two things prospectively. One, what advice do you have for younger surgeons who just want to be better? And two, what are you most excited about? What is the innovation that you're most excited about that's on the horizon? So number one for the young doctors, like all doctors, you have to learn from every case. You have to record your videos. You have to watch the game day footage. There's no other way of getting better. In residency, you say, well, I'm stuck in a program that's only going to allow me 100 cataracts. And that program over there, they do 300 cataracts. And I'll make a difference. Because you know what? 500 is probably half of the learning curve. So neither of you are even half of the learning curve. And it's more important to get more out of every case you do. If you say at the end of every case, what did I do well? What can I do better? What needs improvement? How should I change my technique? Watch that video. That's how you get better and better and better. You've got to commit yourself to it. And let me tell you straight up, we're all smart. In fact, in ophthalmology, I'm one of the dumb people. That's why I work so hard to make up for it, to be very frank. I'm not even joking. I don't believe that. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. 
but there's so many geniuses, so much smarter than I ever was. But the key, though, is how hard are you going to work to get better at this? Because learning anything is easy. You can read a book and learn about North Carolina macular dystrophy that affects those six families in North Carolina. Great. Enjoy. But to learn how to do the surgery is so much harder. You just can't read the book and memorize it. So when you're in your training, give as much as you can out of it and then continue to learn. Don't stop learning. Keep watching videos. It's why I chose the format for cataract codes. The format is five minutes once a day. The videos are five minutes. Often sped up, quickly done, always narrated. And yes, most of the time I do the entire video in one take. I do the audio in one single take. And a lot of the videos I watch for the first time with you. That is so impressive, by the way. As someone who makes, I make a decent number of videos, nothing like you, but I do not do them in one take. I will tell you that. It takes me it takes me quite a few takes to get through and be like, okay, you sounded really dumb there, Morgan. Like, go back and say that again. You know, but your videos sound perfect and you sound so fluid doing it. It's, it's really impressive. Well, part of it too is that with that many videos, you just have to get on. Let's just go, let's go. I got to get it done. And I, I do it about a month in advance. And so therefore I have a nice buffer so I can actually go out of the country, give a lecture, travel a little bit, spend time with the family. And I'm not worried about what about tomorrow's video? Because it's already lined up in the queue. You know what I was thinking is we're both kind of gym guys. We like working out, right? You know, cataract coach is really, it's the gym for cataract surgeons. You got to get your reps in, right? Like you want to get better? You're not going to go to the gym and just walk around the gym and walk out. You got to go and do some sets. And you're the personal trainer. The weight's not going to lift itself. The weight's so heavy. Yeah, unfortunately it is. So yeah, it's so much harder to learn. Of course it is. Oh, it requires time every day. Of course it does. But if you were committed to this and you love off the mall, do you want to be a better surgeon? There's only one way. And now looking forward, you're asking me, we're looking forward to what are we getting? Well, the thing I want the most is I like being a low myope because now that I'm presbyopic, minus two is such a gift for what I do. But I'd rather have a truly accommodating eye look, And that is coming. And it's going to be a total game changer. And how many of your patients now are willing to do all kinds of things just to avoid reading glasses? Well, they're willing to split some light. They want to do monovision. They want to do a pinhole aperture in one eye. They want to do drop to constrict the pupil. They'll do it, whatever it takes to be able to see up close. And so to have a truly accommodating eye well with no loss of image quality compared to a great monofocal lens, it's going to be an absolute game changer. And whether it comes in one year, three years, five years, or 10 years, it doesn't really matter. It's coming. And so by the time you do my FACO, I come out of Texas, you fix me up. By the time, you'll have a great accommodating IOL. And even then, don't overcorrect me. I'd rather be minus a half than plus a half. I'm sure you will be very involved with your calculations. <laughs> I've been surgery for, for 71 ophthalmologists. A huge number. Crazy number. They're the easiest patients of all. Easiest. Because they come in knowing what they want. That's okay here on the couch. So, you know, honestly, you're a high myope. I'd rather you be like, can we aim for minus a half? Can we add a, an extra half time for the L power? And they're like, okay, fine. And then they always ask. I know they want to ask, but they don't ask. But I give them, here's a thumb drive of your surgery. Because I, I know you want to know. I don't want to see mine. I think it'd be fun. I don't think we're ever going to quite get to, the, to this. You know, I saw this historical post recently of this Russian surgeon in Antarctica who developed appendicitis and had to remove his own appendix. And there's this great historical picture. He's masked and gowned and he's doing his own appendectomy. And I'm thinking like, I wonder, nah, it wouldn't be possible. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have any depth. It would... <laughs> I'm like, could we somehow outsource that? I'll find a, a young gun like you who's just, you know, I'll outsource it. Although I do have a urologist friend who did his own vasectomy. 
<laughs> That's impressive. That's impressive. I guess he couldn't afford his copay. Yeah. That- <laughs> That's funny. Uday, thank you so much for joining me. This has been so much fun. It's just, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, whether it's, you know, as part of a panel on some cataract coach talk or on a chairlift in Deer Valley talking about next generation cataract surgery. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be a part of your podcast. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the history of eye care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.